I'm breaking from uh, the series on the kingdom, and I'm going to turn to the uh, exposition of the book of Colossians. Some of you who are really interested in the kingdom and want to take it further, I'd be glad to have a Bible study with you. And if we have enough, we could just meet here on Wednesday nights while the church is not meeting here on Wednesday nights and just have a study in the uh, gathering place and sit around tables and work our way through it. And the reason is, uh, I think you're probably getting bored with me hounding on the kingdom. But I want to tell you something. The Bible is, uh, is replete with the kingdom. Jesus Christ is going to rule. And I think that most Christians don't totally believe that. We're living as though this is our government, this is our world. It is not. You're only going to be here 70 to 100 years. And you're going to spend the rest of the time as a believer where? Boy, that's poor. Where are you going to spend the rest of your life if you're a believer? Yeah. You're going to be working in the kingdom of God eternally. So that's where you ought to put your eggs. And that's where you ought to put your stuff. Because all the stuff you do down here and all the energy you do down here that's for the world, that, uh, that is not going to count. God's not going to ask you when you stand before the judgment seat of Christ, who did you vote for? What is he going to ask you? What is he going to ask you? You ready to answer that? How much time did you spend with me? And how much disservice did you do with me? That's what he's going to ask. And you're building a house right now. And when you get to heaven, you're going to bring your little house to heaven, 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And God's going to take his match and he's going to put fire to that house. What's going to last? Wood, hay, or stubble? Or precious stones? silver and gold you're building that house now every minute of the day so you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart with all your mind and with all your soul and God is not happy with anything less than that quite frankly so uh, if you're interested in that let me know otherwise we're going to be on Sunday mornings <clears throat> we're going to start the book of Colossians starting now Turn your Bibles to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1. We get the salutation in the first eight verses of this book. And this is a book that is a sister book actually to Ephesians. There's a lot of things in Colossians that are talked about in the book of Ephesians or the letter to the Ephesians. And so it's possible that Colossae, Paul never visited Colossae, never been to that church that as far as the record goes. And the church probably started because of the ministry that went on in Ephesus for three years. The church was so blessed and so used by God that they extended themselves to start other churches. And the church at Colossae and Laodicea, which is only about 10 miles away from Colossae, these churches uh, fed off from what the people learned and went back to Colossae or Laodicea and got started in a Bible study and probably got it going and became uh, churches that uh, of some import during the, that particular period of time. We start out and we get the author right off the bat. I'm not going to get into the, the full introduction. I'm just going to start right off with the passage. And Paul is the one who is the author. And in those days, they started out with a letter and, and they would say, if I were to write a letter to you in the days of Paul, I'd say, Rod, to you. So you'd know right off the bat who's writing you. You didn't have to look at the end, the end to see sincerely whoever. He started out with Paul. And we all know Paul. We are very familiar with Paul, that his name at one time was Saul, and that was his Hebrew name. Paul was his Greek name. They had both. He lived in a Gentile city. Grew up in a Gentile city, so when he was in Gentiles, he played 
tag football with the Gentiles, they would call him Saul. But was it when he was with the Jews and they played whatever, I don't even know what Jews are sports really good for uh, Jews. And I've read a book on Jewish sports heroes. And there are a few, by the way, uh, great heroes. Even Red Arbach, who was the coach of the Boston Celtics during their heyday, was a Jew. And I didn't realize that. And Larry, uh, what is that? Larry, who used to be at Kansas and used to be at UCLA, uh, that coach was also a Jew. But anyway, uh, uh, Paul would be the Hebrew name. So if he was in Hebrews, Hebrew uh, circles, he would be called, excuse me, he would be called Saul. With the Gentiles, he'd be called Paul. I, I, I mixed that up. I'm sorry. Look at Philippians chapter 3, verses 2 to 6, as we get a testimony of the book of, or, or of the life of Paul. Uh, Philippians chapter 3, verses 2 to 6. We read the following. Beware of the dogs. That's not nice. Beware of the evil workers. Beware of the false circumcision. Who are those? Jews. For we are the true circumcision who worship the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Those are fighting words to a Jewish audience. Although I myself might have confidence in the flesh, if anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. If you want to know my resume, listen to this. Verse 5, circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. This guy had a quite a pedigree. But look at his testimony in Acts chapter 26, verse 18, when he stands before Agrippa. Turn with me at Acts chapter 26, verses 4 to 18. Now he's defending himself against the Jews who accuse him of destroying Judaism. So in verse 4 of Acts 26, we read, So then all the Jews know my manner of life from my youth up, which from the beginning was spent among my own nation at Jerusalem. Since they have known about me for a long time, if they're willing to testify, that I lived as a Pharisee according to the strictest sect of our religion. <clears throat> and I am now standing trial for the hope of the promise made by God to our fathers, the promise to which our 12 tribes hope to attain, as they earnestly serve God night and day. And for this hope, O king, I am being accused by the Jews. Why is it considered incredible among you people if God does not raise the dead. So then I thought to myself that I had to do many things hostile to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And this is just what I did in Jerusalem. Not only did I lock up many saints in prison, having received authority from the chief priests, but also they were being put to death, I cast my vote against them. And as I punished them, often in synagogues, I tried to force them to blaspheme. And being furiously enraged at them, I kept pursuing them even to foreign cities. While I so engaged, I was journeying to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. At midday, O king, I saw the <clears throat> way of light from heaven, brighter than the sun shining all around me. And those who were with me journey, and those who were journeying with me. And we all had fallen to the ground. I heard the voice saying to me in Hebrew dialect, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you're persecuting. But get up, stand on your feet. For this purpose I've appeared to you to appoint you a minister 
and a witness not only to the things which you have seen, but also to the things in which I will appear to you, rescuing you from Jewish people and from Gentiles to whom I'm sending you, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light, from dominion of Satan to God, and that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. It's quite a testimony. What a change. What a change. You see, Paul was delivered from his life of sin and the evil of persecuting the church. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 12 to 15, he talks about his salvation. He says, even though I was a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor, I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly. And then he says, in the last part of verse 16, he says, my salvation is a pattern for those to come. Now, that was a dramatic change. Salvation is a dramatic change in one's life. When you've repented of your sins and placed your faith in Jesus Christ, there is a change. You can't go on the same way unless that change was nothing more than a profession. It's either a confession or a profession. There's a lot of people who have walked the aisle. There's a lot of people who said they're saved, but there's no evidence of any change. In fact, they've gone on the very same way. Look at the people who said to Jesus, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And then look at the end of the week, they're crying out what? Crucify him, crucify him. Paul made a change. And he is now an apostle of Jesus Christ. From a blasphemer of Christ to a, an apostle of Christ. How big a change can you get? The apostle of Jesus Christ. The office of apostle in the New Testament church were given a, the apostles were given a place of authority as a spokesman for Jesus Christ. Number one, the church was founded upon them. In Ephesians 2.20, we talked about it this morning in our previous class, having been built on a foundation of apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. The cornerstone was set, Jesus set that. It measured north and south, and it was level. And from that, the whole building was built. And the apostles laid the foundation. And they laid it carefully. And they built upon it. And they spoke for Christ. They acted for Christ as a, as a foundation stone. So important is this particular office. Go with me to Revelation chapter 21 and verse 14. Second to the last chapter of the book in your Bible. Revelation chapter 21, verse 14. In this passage of scripture, we read this. And the wall of the city, that's a new Jerusalem. The wall of the city had 12 foundation stones. And on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. So they are very important in the foundation of the church of Jesus Christ, built upon the 12 apostles. They were also specifically authorized by Christ. Turn with me to Luke chapter 6, verse 13, and see their importance. Luke chapter 6, verse 13. This morning's going to be a Bible drill. So, uh, we're a Bible church, so you should expect that. Luke chapter 6, verse 13. And when the day came, he called his disciples to him, and he chose 12 of them, whom he also named as apostles. Jesus chose 12 out of his disciples to himself, for a special and specific 
purpose. Turn to Matthew chapter 10, verse 1, and there's a further explanation how Jesus chose his 12. Matthew chapter 10 and verse 1. So out of all of his disciples that followed him, and Jesus had a large following, all of them that followed him, he chose specifically 12 men. And one was a betrayer, by the way. Matthew chapter 10, verse 1. Jesus summoned his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every kind of diseases and every kind of sickness. Well, that's interesting. Because with the apostles came that apostolic age. In the beginning of that age, when after the ascension of Christ, the apostles had the authority to have and write to heal, to even raise the dead, and even to do all the miracles that Christ did with the exception of walking on the water and feeding thousands from a few loaves. Interesting. In fact, when you get to Paul later in 2 Corinthians 12, 12, he said, I had all the signs of an apostle. Now Paul was challenged, of course, because he was not one of the 12. Nor did he take Judas's place. Matthias took that place legitimately in Acts chapter 1. Paul comes along later as a specific apostle specified to be an apostle to the Gentiles. So they had supernatural power to act as a representative of Christ they had full legal authority to act on Christ's behalf, and they are the primary representatives of Jesus Christ. Now, when you look at 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 23, you have Titus, and he in the original language is called an apostle. He's a secondary apostle, and he is a sent forth person from a church, whereas Paul, Peter, John, and those were apostles from Jesus Christ representing them, whereas Titus represented a church, so did Barnabas. And so that's the reason they were called apostles, but their names are not on the foundation stone of the city, the new Jerusalem. Second Corinthians 8.23 says, as for Titus, he is my partner and fellow worker among you uh, as our brethren. They are messengers. The word messenger in the Greek there is apostoloi, apostle. They are apostles of the churches of the glory of God. So apostle was an agent today. Would be the best word uh, to define apostleship. They're agents. When you have an agent, he works for you, right? He does the things for you. He has a legal authority to do things for you and to work a deal, whatever it might be. And in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 6 to 9, we read this. Then he appeared, Jesus appeared after his resurrection, to James, then to all the apostles, all 12, and last of all, to one untimely born, he appeared to me. So Paul always had to defend his discipleship because he was not one of the 12. The ministry of the apostles was authenticated by signs. We read in, second, in Galatians 2, 7 and 8, but on the contrary, seeing that I've been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised Gentiles, just as Peter had been to the circumcised. For he effectually worked in Peter in his apostleship to the circumcised and effectually worked for me also to the Gentiles. 2 Corinthians 12, 12, the signs of a true apostle were performed among you with all perseverance by signs and wonders and miracles. So Paul did the same thing. Remember he got stoned, they threw him outside the city as though he were dead and he got up and walked away. Now, stoning was not exactly a gracious way of capital punishment. Took up a stone that you could throw and piled it on a person. Bones crushed, whatever. And that's what they did with the Apostle Paul. Out of the city, they left him. They thought he was deader than a doornail, but he gets up and walks away. 
Now, we've gotten this discussion of a miracle. That's a miracle. That is a miracle. Now, if, he'd, uh, if he would have barely survived that and spent some days in, in, uh, in the hospital and had some casts and pins and whatever put on to get his bones right, and get everything right, and he healed, that would not be a miracle. That would be a providence. That'd be a normal way that you would expect it to be done, right? But a miracle jumps all that. Just like when Jesus said to the paralytic, rise, take up your bed and walk. If, if somebody sliced off your ear, what would you expect? You would rush that, take that ear and rush to the hospital and hopefully there's enough life in the ear that you can still attach it on and they'd stitch it on and, and you put a stuff on it to make it feel better and everything and hopefully uh, you would have and get your ear back but when Jesus put the ear back on the soldier in the garden, when he was arrested, uh, it's on. That's a miracle. So all healing is of God. Let's just face it. I'm not denying that God heals. I'm not denying that at all. But the healing that happens is simultaneously and it's perfect. So uh, it's not done by faith healers. All healing is done by God. And he, d he uses ordinary means. God has uh, our uh, gene pool from Adam and Eve depreciates. We have a lot more genetic diseases, right? So God in his love and grace has provided medicines, has provided physicians, has provided nurses, has, has, has provided intellectual people who stand behind the scenes and work to comfort us in our life here. What a great gift that is to us. And when you go to a foreign country where they reject God and they worship spirits and they have black magic, what kind of medicine do they have? You have some guy dancing around a fire half naked shaking a some kind of a drum over you while you're sweating and dying with fever. It's Christianity that has brought the health to us in the physical realm. We ought to be thankful for that. And so uh, I am, for one. I'm very thankful for that. And, but in those days, part of the uh, authentication of the apostles being with Christ the verification that these were men of God, various signs came to show that these men did something no one else could do, that only their father, the head of them and the one they worshiped was Jesus Christ who did a plethora. What is that word? Plethora? What is it? Plethora? P-L-T-H-O-R-A. Plethora, yeah. Got it. That's a miracle that I got it. But anyway, they had all kinds of signs. And he's an apostle by the will of God. Paul's appointment as apostle of Jesus Christ was planned from all eternity. He says in Galatians 1, verses 15 and 16, but when God set me apart, even from my mother's womb, called me through his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach among the Gentiles. Wow. While he was chasing down believers, locking them up, consenting to their death, God had already planned his salvation. Just like you. Before you were saved, God had already planned the day that you would become his child, born again. You're a Christian by the will of God. Wasn't your will. You know what your will was, according to the scripture? To run away from him. You were an enemy, according to Romans. Soon as Adam and Eve sinned, what did they do? They ran and hid. 
There's none who seeks after God. No, not one. None of us did. Even if we grew up in a Christian home like I did. We ran from God until he stopped us. Not as dramatic maybe as he stopped Paul on the road to Damascus, but he stopped us in our tracks. And we said, Lord, I believe. I repent of what I was. So we are, he was a believer by the will of God. We read his testimony in Acts 9, 5 to 6. At Acts 9, 15, he said, But the Lord said to him, Go, for he's a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and sons of Israel. You realize that Paul bore witness to Nero, the worst king I think you could ever live. Paul stood before him. And I can't imagine Paul not sharing the gospel or speaking of the gospel. He spoke before kings, Agrippa, Felix. He spoke before them all. His commission was given to him and that commission, as he believed it, gave him absolute confidence, absolute assurance that he was doing the will of God. If you're struggling with whether you're saved or not, or you're struggling with your own salvation, you're probably not a very good witness. If you're struggling with that. Or you might, if you're struggling with that, and you're, you think your salvation, you've got to hold on fast to your salvation, then you're probably doing works to soothe your conscience. I've had people say, well, the Jehovah Witnesses, we ought to have the, the enthusiasm of a Jehovah Witness. Well, I agree they have the enthusiasm, but they have the zeal without knowledge. And they're zealous because they want to get in to the top notch of the 144,000. And they're very zealous for that. So they'll go stand on a street corner, go door by door by door. They have that zeal. But if you're a believer in Jesus Christ and you believe that God has commissioned you to be a believer, you can stand with confidence knowing Speaking to someone knowing it's not you who are going to save them. It's the word of God and the Holy Spirit is going to save them. You are the witness. And if they say to you, go jump in a lake, then you know they're not one of the chosen. But when they say to you, I'm interested, you know that God, the Holy Spirit, is working in their heart and life. What a joy that is to see that. I think it was Charles Spurgeon who said, you know, if God marked all the chosen one with a X on their back, I'd go around lifting shirts. Because he'd like to know who's chosen. And so when you talk to somebody and they say, I'm not interested, you know, they're probably not at that point. At least God is not calling them. But if you talk to someone and they are interested, the only way they can be interested in what you're saying about the gospel is that the Holy Spirit is making it clear to them. Because they can't do it on their own. So we had this commission. And this commission was very difficult. Take a look at 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 21. If you're really going to serve the Lord... It's not going to be some easy pie in the sky kind of a ministry or it's going to be more a bed of roses, sweet smelling flowers, but a lot of stickers. Second Corinthians chapter 11, verse 21 and following. But in whatever respect anyone else is, because he's being challenged, you're not really an apostle, Paul. You're a fake. You're just in it for the money. You're just in it for the popularity. You just like the idea of being called an apostle. 
So here's what he says. Here's his answer. But in whatever respect anyone else is bold, I speak in foolishness. I am just as bold myself. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they descendants of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I speak as if insane. I more so. For in more labors and far more imprisonments, beaten times without number, often in danger of death, five times I received from the Jews 20, 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and day I've spent in the deep. I've been in frequent journeys, in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers uh, and wilderness, dangers on the seas, dangers among false brethren. I've been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights, in hunger, thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. Apart from these external things, there is the daily pressure on me of concern for all the churches. Who's weak without being weak? Who is led into sin without intense concern? That's his resume. Would you want a preacher like that? You've gone through all that, you'd say, yeah, there's something wrong with him. Why is he getting all these beaten and why has all this stuff happened to him? He must not be very good. He only stayed in a church three years long. Must not be, must not be really good. When I look at that list, I'll be honest with you, I'm a wimp. I'm a wimp. I run around trying to avoid trouble. I don't look for it. Do you? Some of you may, I know you. But normally we do not look for trouble. We, try, we do everything we can to avoid it. He knew that it was coming. He was told that by the Lord. And the Lord has basically told us that. All those who follow Jesus will suffer persecution. It's not health, wealth, and prosperity. It's that we're going to be, we're going to be betrayed. We're going to be stabbed in the back. And we're going to be disappointed. And we may even face some pretty tougher trials than that because of what we believe and what we stand for. And so because we know we're going to be trouble, we know there might be trouble, we know they may misunderstand us, we don't say it. And how many churches are operating this morning avoiding things that might be controversial that the people need to hear and know? And if you hear something controversial from me, go to the Word for, and tell me where I've made a mistake because I don't want to go on making mistakes. Now we look at the associate. He's Timothy, our brother. Now Timothy's an interesting guy. He's received a lot of abuse by preachers and teachers of the New Testament. But here's his background, Acts chapter 16, verses 1 to 4. Acts chapter 16, verses 1 to 4. Paul came to Derbe and to Lystra, and a disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. And he was well spoken of by the brethren who were in Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted this man to go with him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in that part, for they all knew his father was a Greek. So in 1 Corinthians 4.17, we read this about Timothy. For this reason I sent to you Timothy, who is my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, and he will remind you of my ways which are in Christ, just as I teach everywhere. Look what he says to the Philippians about Timothy. But I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly, so that I also may be encouraged when I learn of your condition. For I have, listen to this, I have no one else of kindred spirit who will genuinely be concerned 
for your welfare. Timothy understood the ministry of Paul and had a kindred spirit. That's rare. It's rare to find somebody who has a kindred spirit with you. The friend I lost uh, last week who's now in heaven. Uh, we had a kindred spirit. Uh, he came into the church uh, in Hutchinson when he was 36 years old. He was a contractor, built homes. And he was in the uh, social crowd in Hutchinson. And he uh, came to really know Christ, he and his wife, Joyce. And uh, he, he and I became good friends. He was in Bible studies. Eventually he taught him. After about three or four years, he went to Calvary Bible College. And as he was going to Calvary Bible College, the Lord used him to start a church in Parkville, Missouri. And he built a church there. And uh, in those years that we were close friends, we had a kindred spirit. We weren't together more than five minutes. And we were already discussing the Word of God and what God had for the church. Just a kindred spirit. Over the years, uh, I haven't seen him much, and we haven't made a lot of contact with each other over the years. But I really appreciate the years, and I appreciate people. And so do you that have a kindred spirit with you, that you can just sit down. And without prompting, you start talking about the Lord. How many times do we meet people and we talk about the price of beans, corn, weather? We talk about with whom we're related and how we all fit together. But just to sit down and talk about Jesus, talk about the Lord, and just let it flow. Timothy was that kind of guy. He was one that had a kindred spirit with him with Paul. And he was so confident of Timothy. Here's, here's the assignment he gives Timothy. Not only go to Corinth, not only go to Philippi, but I'm sending you to Ephesus. And here's what I want you to do. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 3, I urge you upon my departure for Macedonia, remain on at Ephesus. Why? So that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines, nor to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies which give rise to mere speculation rather than the furthering of the administration of God, which is by faith. What's your main job, Timothy? You correct wrong doctrine. You stand up to false teachers. You tell them that myths that they're talking about are worthless. And why are you getting involved in all these genealogies? Do you think that's an easy job? Do you think that's an easy job for a preacher to walk into a church where they're doctrinally not right? It's not easy. I've been there. And people that you like and people that you'd like to like turn to be your enemies. Lie about you and do all kinds of things. And most of the suffering that I have faced as a pastor has not been from the world. It's been from the church. Not here. But it's been from the church. And Timothy has a tough job. No wonder he gets a little discouraged. You'd, it'd be tough too. How would you be like to stand before a congregation and you'd have half the people mad at you before you even started? Not easy. Not easy. Now we see the recipients in verse 2. And the first part of that verse, to the saints, faithful brethren in who are in Classy. Interesting, the congregation at Classy is called saints and faithful brethren. The word the controls both the words saints and faithful, so they're the same in the congregation. 
If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you are a saint. Catholicism has saints, but they've had to work a certain way, be a missionary, work with uh, orphans or whatever. But every believer who trusts in God is a saint positionally. When you were saved, you were joined with Jesus Christ and the righteousness of God was imputed to your account. So you have two ledgers of the book. Your assets were, you're a sinner. Your assets, your debt page, I should say. Your assets now, you have the righteousness of God written in your ledger book. You're a saint, positionally. How do you think it is you can walk into the throne of, room of God and pray as a sinner? Would you admit that you sin every day? I would. Uh, the one day was Thursday. No, I sin every day. Of last year, by the way. No. I sin every day. How is it that I can get up in the morning and sit down and place my, your, my request, my desire for God in his very throne room? As a sinner. How can I at the end of the day. Thank God for the day. And all that he's done. And bring my request to him. In his very throne room. Even though I've sinned during the day. In thought and deed. Only one way. I've been declared righteous. I've been justified. I stand in the righteousness of God. And before him. In the person of Christ, I am as good as Christ is good. Wow. I'm not that good. I'm terrible compared to him. But it's God's righteousness through his death on a cross that was imputed to me that I could be called and you could be called saints, holy ones. Now that's a privilege, a great privilege. And God looks at me when I stand there with my prayer requests. He sees the person of Jesus Christ. I'm in his garments. That's why I love that song that we sing here. Uh, his robes, what is it? His robes for mine. It's his robes. It's his, his righteousness that is on me. Wow, what a, what a deal. So they're faithful too. Look at the book of uh, uh, Colossians. Just turn to Colossians. And look how many times he uses the word faithful in this book. Faithful means loyal, steadfast, unbending, standing on a rock. In uh, Colossians 1.7, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved bond servant, slave, who is a faithful servant of Christ on our behalf. How about Colossians 4, 7, where he says, and, all to all, and as to all my affairs, Tychius, our beloved brother, and faithful servant and fellow bond servant, slave in the Lord, will bring you information. He brought the letter to the Colossians. Don't you like faithful people? They're the same every day. They're not up and down and in and around and maybe one day singing the blues how God didn't give him rain when he needed it, complaining about it. Next day he's in the air because he got a higher price for his corn than he expected. Just up and down and up and down. But he, these guys were faithful steadfast during the bad times during the good times same how about Colossians 4 9 and with Onesimus our faithful and beloved brother who is one of your number they'll inform you about the whole situation here and where were they at Colossae the city of Colossae today is nothing but ruins at the time of Paul Colossae of Phrygia, having been incorporated by Rome 
and administration in the province of Asia. The city was 11 miles west of Laodicea and 13 miles northeast of Hierapolis. It stood in a, before a gorge, a mountain about over 8,000 feet, Mount Canvas, was right beside the city. And this city's Christianity came to this city from Epaphras and Timothy, Colossians 1 and 1 and 7. And it was the home of Philemon and Epaphras. Remember Philemon? Slave ran off with his money and, and got saved and now is coming back. There are many Jewish people living there and uh, religion was really lax in this city. But the Jews that were there were worshiping angels. Now, a few years ago, this was a real fad in the United States. You'd walk into any bookstore and there would be angels, books all over the place. They were worshiping angels. And Paul says about this city, he said, I want you to know how great a struggle I have on your behalf and for those who are at Laodicea and for all those who have not personally seen my face. For I testify in chapter 4, verse 13, testify that he may, that he has, speaking of Epaphras, a deep concern for you and for those who are in Laodicea and Hierapolis. Then he closes with a blessing. Grace to you and peace from God our Father. You got grace and salvation, right? You were saved not on your own merits. God saved you. And what about every day? What about every day? If you got what you deserved every day, it'd be miserable. But every day, God supplies grace. He supplies grace in many, many ways. What about the happy times? All those are God. Every good and perfect gift comes from God. Do you thank him for it? You thank him for your family. You thank him for your mate. Thank you for your, your relatives, for your neighbors, for the area in which you live. When I visited Nebraska and visited my mom, we'd occasionally stop in Lincoln and the Haymarket was just beginning and walked into a store and it said, there's a shirt that said, if you come to Nebraska, bring something to do. Aren't you glad you live here? Aren't you glad for the grace of God that he brought you here? Are you great that he brought you to this church? That he saved you? All your life is filled with grace. It was a common Greek greeting, but it had more than just hello. It's just say grace. Remind yourself of this and peace. And where does peace come from? God the Father. We're not talking, peace is the quietness between two foes, but we're talking here about an inner peace, an inner peace. And I, and I was a witness of that last week and a week before. A woman who had a great influence over her family and people in the church. I've known Chris since she was a sophomore in high school. And I remember for some reason I taught the youth group that a couple weeks. I don't remember why, but I remember doing it. <clears throat> and I went home and I said, Faith, there's a girl in there, a sophomore girl in that youth group that is way beyond the others. She has a flair for God that I've never seen in a teenager. Never. And she appeared many times to be Overdo it. I mean, when Chris walked into the room, you knew she was there. In some ways, she took the air out of the room. But let me tell you something. we known her for all these years, and she had a strong testimony for Jesus Christ. And when the crisis of her life hit, there was peace, not panic. Peace. 
And all who ministered to her saw that peace. I think Bob was with me and we visited a guy in the church years ago and complained about the doctor's care, about the nurse's care, about the food in the hospital. Complained about everything that was going on in there and I said to him, did you tell, him he, tell them you're from our church? He said no and I said, well don't. wife met me out of the door. She said, thank you. <laughs> no peace. No peace. Peace is settlement with God that God is doing his will. And as reminded in Sunday school this morning, he works all things out for your good and his glory. What a greeting. Let's stand for prayer. Father, thank you for Colossians and the letter that Paul wrote. Thank you for Paul. We still enjoy his letters. We still enjoy his person. And after we've met you, Lord, we're looking forward to meeting all the apostles, prophets. But we're really looking forward to meeting Paul face to face. And to sit down with him and enjoy the fellowship. All his scars are gone. You, Lord, your son is the only one that bears scars. As a reminder to us of the great price was paid for our salvation. And so, Father, we pray this morning that if there's some here who have not placed their faith and trust in you or debating this or being convicted and going back and forth, we pray this is the morning they'd realize that, that God is calling them to himself. And without hesitation, they take and repent of their sin and put their faith and trust in you. And Father, take advantage of one of our elders who's up here, Lord, to encourage them or to talk to someone else that's here that loves the Lord and settle this issue and join the fellowship of believers and join the fellowship of saints and faithful slaves. So Father, we pray for this afternoon and the activities therein. We pray that we might honor and glorify you. And we pray that you will, we will be faithful until you come or till you call us home. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.